Thank you, Rich. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Titus. We'll be in chapter 2. And uh, as I've been preparing to teach this passage, um, I confess to feeling a profound sense of inadequacy. And uh, I feel a little bit like a fellow student of mine this past year who... Um, our professor gave us the opportunity for any student who wanted to to lead the class for a day. And so this guy, he was the only one who had the nerve to do it. And uh, his name is De Cheng. He's from China. And he's, um, English is his second language. Hebrew is his third. He's two years into Hebrew. And uh, he still struggles slightly with English. He can speak well, but he's got a bit of an accent, and his English is slightly broken. So you can imagine what it's like being two years into Hebrew, trying to teach a Hebrew class as you're still slightly struggling with English. Well, I feel a bit like that this morning just because I feel uh, as though I'm trying to teach something that I haven't really mastered myself. And I know that anytime we, anytime someone stands up and teaches the word, that that's the case. But I, I feel, especially, uh, feel especially that way with this passage. And I think you'll see why soon. So... Um, if any of you are a little bit beat up by what Paul has to say, just know that I'm right there with you, and we can all grow together. Uh, but I'm praying for the Lord's help and seeking to grow in the areas where I need to grow. So let's dive into the passage here, and we'll read through it. Uh, Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So in this passage, Paul is going to give us two pressing needs for young Christian men. <clears throat> young Christian men need first passionate exhortations towards self-control. Secondly, they need godly models to pattern themselves after. Now, notice the order that Paul has been going through in this chapter. He addressed older men first, then he skips the younger men. He goes to older women and then younger women, and now he comes back to younger men. And when he says younger men, in the Greek, the, the phrase younger men is at the front of the sentence, and I think he's emphasizing the young men need special exhortation. Apparently, they need a double dose. J.C. Ryle said the same thing in uh, his book, Thoughts for Young Men. And I've got a couple um, paragraphs that I pulled out of his book that I wanted to read. He says, I'm growing old myself, but there are a few things that I can remember so well as were the days of my youth. I have a most distinct recollection of the joys and the sorrows, the hopes and the fears, the temptations and the difficulties, the mistaken judgments and the misplaced affections, the errors and the aspirations which, sur which surround and accompany a young man's life. Let us ask any faithful minister of the gospel and note what he will tell us. How many unmarried young people can he remember who came to the Lord's Supper? Who are the most backward about the doctrines of salvation, the most irregular about Sunday services, the most difficult to draw to weekly Bible studies and prayer meetings, the most inattentive to whatever is being preached? Which part of his congregation fills him with the most anxiety? Who are the Rubens for whom he has the greatest searchings of heart? Who in his flock are the hardest to manage? Who, who require the most frequent warnings and rebukes? Who cause him the greatest uneasiness and sorrow? 
who keep him most constantly in fear of their souls and seem most hopeless? Depend on it. The answer will always be young men. Being a young man is great. There are so many hopes and dreams, so much energy and unique opportunities. But there are some unique challenges and dangers for young men that we face. And the primary danger that Paul wants to emphasize in this passage is the danger from within. Guys, as young men, we have no greater danger than, no greater enemy than ourselves. The worldly passions and desires inside of us are trying to destroy us every day. And they will if we let them. But ladies, don't you tune out either because this passage is about character. And so it applies equally well to all of us. This passage has helped me this week as I've been preparing to teach it and thinking through it and praying about it, meditating on it. It's helped me to see my needs so much more. I have so far to go and so much growth to do. It's driven me to be more dependent on God because I see that the character that I'm called to have is totally beyond my ability to produce. And it's led me to identify a few key areas in my life where I need to change and grow and to ask the Lord for his help in those areas. So I'll give you a quick reminder about where we've been in the book so far. Um, or at least where we've been lately. Back in the end of chapter 1, Paul gave a, a stinging indictment of the false teachers in Crete, the people who were propping themselves up and who were living ungodly lives to boot. They weren't only teaching what was incorrect, they were also living lives that demonstrated ungodliness and really put a stain on the reputation of Christ and his word. Then the section that begins in chapter 2 Paul gives us the right way to live in contrast to that of the false teachers. If you look in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. He says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So as opposed to these false teachers, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And notice he doesn't say, Teach, what's, teach sound doctrine. I think that's assumed that Titus is already doing that. But Titus is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So what is that? What accords with sound doctrine? It's a godly life. And I think the implication for us is, guys, do you like to learn about theology? Do you like to study the Bible? Do you like to learn about God? I hope you do at some level. It doesn't necessarily have to be at a scholarly level, but I hope you like to read the Bible and learn about the God that we serve. But that's not enough. We can't just have head knowledge. We have to live it out. We have to be a testimony that proves that we not only think certain things and give mental assent to them, but we truly believe and practice those things. So Paul is going to give us two pressing needs for young Christian men. He's addressing Titus, who is a, a teacher and Paul's delegate here on the island of Crete. But the instruction that he's giving is for the young men. So young men need first passionate exhortations toward self-control. So notice there's only one command here, one direct command that Titus is supposed to give to the young men. There are other implications, but the fact that Titus only gives us young men one direct command, I think says something. It says that this is a big need for young men like us. Um, so what does this self-control mean? What is he talking about here? Well, the word in Greek can be translated a couple different ways. It can be translated self-controlled or sensible. 
I think it's a control over your thinking that works itself out in a, in a self-controlled living. So why is this important? Why do we need to have this kind of self-control? Why would Paul emphasize this one thing so much? Well, Paul knows that this is one of the biggest areas that young men like us can tend to be lacking. We may give the, the ladies a hard time about being emotional sometimes, but frankly, some of the most emotionally driven people I've met have been young men like me. You don't believe me? Well, how often do you stay up too late and oversleep the next morning and be late to work because you're having fun the night before and didn't want to go to bed, or because you don't enjoy your job and you're regretting having to go the next day and just put it off? How many times this month have you missed reading your Bible and praying because you had things that were more entertaining to do? Are there areas of responsibility in your life that get neglected more often than not just because you don't enjoy doing them? Do you get angry or depressed, discouraged when life doesn't go the way you want it to? If any of you are saying, ouch, yet, I'm right there with you. Do you regularly try to self-medicate by binge-watching your favorite shows until the wee hours of the morning? Are you enslaved to lust and pornography? How about school? Are you always turning in assignments late when you really had enough time to get them done, but you just didn't discipline yourself to spend the time well? So you're saying, okay, so I get it. I need to have self-control. You're killing me. What am I supposed to do? How can I have this, what does a self-controlled life look like? Well, it's not perfection. You don't become a machine that has no emotions and um, you're always perfectly disciplined and everything always goes perfectly. No, it's not perfection. We all sin and fail. I've sinned and failed in many of these areas this week as I've been preparing to teach and I've had to repent. No, it's a pattern. You develop it over time. And it's... Um, something you grow in. It's not, a, it's not a quick fix. It reminds me of a story of my nephew. When he was just a few years old, he was complaining to my mom about their family's cat. And it was, it was mean. It would bite and scratch. And uh, he was a little rough with it, too, which probably didn't help. And so my mom told him, she said, well, you just need to be kind to the cat, and it'll be nice to you. And he said, well, yeah, but I tried it once, and it didn't work. And I think that's often how we tend to approach the Christian life and obedience and faithfulness. We say, well, I tried it for a couple weeks, and it just didn't seem to do any good. It didn't work, and so I just gave up. I got discouraged, like those New Year's resolutions. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all these great things, and then two weeks later, we're starting to let it slide. And then a month later, we've totally forgotten about it. So it's a pattern. It's something that develops over time. It looks like consistency. You have some steadiness in your life. You build on it. It's submission. You do what God has said to do because he is sovereign over us. and He has control and has authority, and we have to obey, and we get the privilege of being his children. But it means we have to submit, even when it's hard, even when there are temptations, even when life doesn't go the way we want it to. It looks like dependence. It's not just self-improvement. It's not pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do better. It's totally beyond what we can accomplish by unaided human effort. And it's not to earn anything from God either. We do it out of thankfulness for the fact that God has already done for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
it looks like repentance. We're not always going to do it right. We're going to fail. We're going to mess up. We're going to sin. And unfortunately, on this side of, of glorification, that's normal, and that will happen, and we can't expect that it won't. But it looks like repentance. When we fail, when we fall, we get back up. We confess it to the Lord. We ask his forgiveness. We make it right with anyone that we may have hurt. And we get back up, and we keep doing the right thing. And we get back to it, back to being faithful. And it looks like growth. It's not a quick fix. It's not, a, it's not one thing you need to change, and then your life will always be consistent and faithful and self-controlled. No, you look back over a period of time. And those little decisions, they stack up and they build on each other. And you look back a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, and you see by God's grace, you've grown and you've changed to become more like Christ. So what are the dangers if we don't obey this command? Well, one of them is you will harm yourself. Turn over to Galatians 5, if you would. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. This kind of gives the extreme of someone who is in a lifestyle of sin. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul isn't saying that if you ever sin, that you, he's not saying you can lose your salvation, and he's not saying that if you, you've ever committed any of these sins, that it means you're not a Christian. He's saying that if your, if your life is characterized by unrepentant sin, you should fear. So you'll harm yourself if you don't obey these commands. Another thing you'll do is you'll harm others. Don't ever think that your sin only affects you. You can't sin in a vacuum. If your life is characterized by a lack of self-control, you're going to harm everyone else around you. Just think about it. How will you ever, if you can't control yourself, how will you ever be able to lead a family one day or serve the church body well or be a light to the world around you? What's the world going to think? What's one of the most common excuses you hear for non-believers who don't want to go to the church and hear the word preached? You say there are a lot of hypocrites in the church. And unfortunately, there's a little bit of truth to what they say. We don't want to live lives that give them a reason to criticize. And thirdly, the other thing that will happen if we don't obey this command is we will dishonor God's reputation. Look back in Titus 2, the end of verse 8. He says, Titus, you should have all these things so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Notice he says us. He doesn't say you. I think Paul is probably talking about himself and the other apostles as representatives of Christ. Either that or he's talking about all believers. Either way, he's talking about those who represent Christ. So if we live a life that is characterized by being controlled by ourselves and not controlling ourselves, we bring a stain on the reputation of Christ. So what lies are we tempted to believe instead of obeying this truth? Well, one is that we're tempted to think this is not a very big deal. What's the big deal? I just stayed up all night and was three hours late to work the next morning. 
Most of my friends don't know about it. I still am faithful most of the time. I'm, uh, I'm faithful in a lot of other areas. And sure, we all, we all sin and we all fail. And I'm not saying that it's one strike and you're out or three strikes and you're out. But it is a big deal. This is a big priority for Paul. This is why he wanted to emphasize this so much. <clears throat> Another lie that we're tempted to believe is it can wait till later. We think, well, I'll just put it off for now, but I'll be faithful later. I'll be self-controlled later on when I'm a little bit older. It doesn't work that way. It's like dieting. If we say we're going to be healthy next month, but we're going to eat all the junk food we can now this month, that just doesn't work. Some of the most hard-hearted and miserable men I've ever met were old men who didn't learn self-control when they were young men. Another lie that we're tempted to believe is that we have to get all the enjoyment now we, that we can while we're still young and we're, while we're able to enjoy it. It doesn't work that way either. I've never heard of a man on his deathbed who just was regretting, saying, man, I wish that I'd spent more time watching movies. I wish I'd played more video games. I wish I'd bought myself more things. I wish I'd owned a boat or a big truck or a fancy car. People don't say that on their deathbed. They say, I wish I'd been a better husband. I wish I'd been a better father. I wish I'd been a better church member. I wish I'd known the Lord at all. I wish I'd made things right with him. They say the man who dies with the most toys wins. But that's not true. The man who dies with the most toys leaves the most toys behind when he dies and can't take it with him. And it's not that we shouldn't enjoy ourselves. It's not that we shouldn't enjoy the blessings that God has given us. They're good things, and they're, they're for us to enjoy and give God glory for. So I'm not saying we need to be a killjoy and not enjoy those things. We just shouldn't be motivated by them. It's not what we live for. It's not what we worship. This passage has helped me in my own life as I've been studying it. It's identified several areas where I'm weak and sinful and need to grow. A lot of them spring from discontentment. I think that's one of the really common things for for young guys, we're, we're discontent with where we're at in life. We want things to be different. We either want something we don't have or don't want something we do have. And that's a lack of trust in God's plan for us. A lack of trust that his way is better than our way. Another thing that it has helped me with this week is it has drawn me to pray more. Uh, I've just really seen my need for the Lord to help me grow in these areas. And this is where we all need to grow. So practically, how can we obey this command for self-control? What are some steps we can take to appropriate it into our lives? Well, um, it's not rocket science. There are a few things that we can do. And obviously, it's by God's power, and it's by his righteousness, not our own. But there are some practical things we can do. We can identify one or two areas, areas this week where we know we need to grow and start working on them. Try to identify the wrong beliefs and motivations behind them and speak truth to yourself from the word about those. Ask the Lord for his help. He's promised he will help us, and he's going to work in us. Ask a godly older man to help you and tell him what's going on in your life. Don't hide it from him. People can't help you unless they know what you're struggling with. Then put one foot in front of the other. I know that 
we have to depend on the Lord and we can't do anything without him. And yet, in sanctification, there is a human element involved. There's effort. And sometimes we don't wait for God to zap us with sanctification and obedience. We have to get out there and do it. And the Lord will work in us as we obey. And then repent when you fail. Like I said, we're all going to fail. We all do. Unfortunately, on this side of glory, it's normal, and we will, but we get back up. Like I said, we repent. We ask the Lord for forgiveness and help, and we keep going. So the first thing that we've been talking about is passionate exhortations towards self-control. The second thing that young men need are godly models to pattern themselves after. Why do young men need godly models like this to follow? Well, God didn't intend for us to live the Christian life alone. We're insufficient in and of ourselves. And one of the means that God has given to help us is the example of of men who are further along than we are. So what kind of men should we be looking for, this kind of models? What kind of models are we looking for to pattern our lives after? Well, there are four things that Paul tells Titus that he should model for these young men, or literally to show or present Let's read verses 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So he says show something or present something. Number one, show yourself to be a model of good works. Guys, who do you know who is a model of good works? Someone who is always trying to serve the Lord and do what's right and serve him. Find this kind of man. Spend time with these people. Work at it. Put some time into it. It's worth it. This is what God has saved you for. Good works. Look at verses 13 and 14. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for a and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Men, we need to be zealous for good works. Do things for the Lord. Do hard things, even when it hurts, even when it costs. Beyond modeling good works, Titus is to model three more things in his teaching. These things are directed at Titus as Paul's delegate on the island of Crete, teaching at these, in these churches and, and setting up elders, but they're equally applicable to us in our lives. And we should find models of these things, and we should seek to be this way ourselves. So the the next kind of model that we need are models of integrity or uncorruptedness. This means that Titus' teaching needs to match his life. Guys, it's not okay to live one way at church and then live in rebellion the rest of the week. We have to be consistent and faithful and not have impurity and corruptedness. That's what integrity means. You're not, you're not corrupted. You're the same person everywhere. Again, I'm not talking about perfection either. I'm just saying that if you claim to be a believer, your life needs to back up your profession, or else your profession isn't worth much. James puts it very strongly in James 2, 18 through 20. He says, But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your works Show me, excuse me, show your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. 
The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? So we need to be people of integrity who live out what we believe and don't just say it. Next, the next kind of models that we need are models of soberness or dignity. He says, um, be models, uh, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. So dignity, it's not a killjoy. It's not someone who always has a, a straight face all the time, never laughs, always looks down their nose at everyone else. No, it's someone who takes life seriously, someone who's not flippant. They know that life is short, God is good, people need the Lord, and eternity is real. They live their lives in a way that shows that they care about these things. They live for eternity, not for the here and now. Titus is supposed to model this in his teaching. The next kind of model that we need are models of healthy speech. The ESV translates it sound speech. Literally, it could be translated in sound or healthy. Um, it's like when you go to the doctor and you get a checkup, and he says, you're good to go, you're healthy, you're sound. That's the way our speech should be. So what do people get out of your speech? What do they come away with after talking to you? Do you speak the truth accurately? Do you know the truth from the word? Do you speak in a way that edifies or in a way that tears down others? Is your speech appropriate or is it crass and vulgar? I'm not saying that everything you say needs to be a Bible verse or that you can't ever joke and laugh and have fun. No. It just means your speech needs to be appropriate. It needs to be good. It needs to be healthy. So find men who are examples in these areas, who live this kind of life already, and learn to become like them. Spend time with them. Get to know them. What are the dangers if we don't do this in our lives, if we don't have these kind of men? Well, we could become prideful, prideful and think that we pretty much arrived and we don't really need all that much improvement. If we're only listening to ourselves, Ourselves are usually pretty, pretty nice to us, and uh, it's easy to overlook or just not even see sin and faults in our lives if we don't have people in our lives who know about them to help us see. We can hide a lot of sin that really needs to be dealt with. It's uncomfortable to let people know about our sin and immaturity, but it'll destroy our lives if we don't deal with it. It's like refusing to go to the doctor because you're embarrassed to show him your ugly cancerous tumor. Why don't we do this? Why don't we have people like this in our lives more? One reason could be pride. We just don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to admit that we need help. Another could be fear. We're afraid that people will be unkind to us or judge us when they know what we're really like. Another could be unbelief. We just don't really believe that we need it. We think we're doing okay. Even the Bible says we do need this. So how can a young man get started with this? If you're listening, thinking, oh, I see, I need it, but I don't know what to do. I've never done anything like this. I've never had someone like this in my life. I don't really even know where to start. Well, get to know some people who are more spiritually mature than you are. Just spend time around them. Get to know them, see what they're like, see how they live. Try to imitate them. Be honest about your struggles with them and your sin. Don't hide it. Don't sugarcoat it. Be willing to ask for help. When they offer help, receive it willingly and humbly. And remember, the testimony of Christ is at stake here. Look back at the end of verse 8 again. 
Titus, do all these things so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. It's about us, those who represent Christ. We don't want to give people a bad impression of what Christ is, who Christ is. So men and women, let's seek to grow in self-control this week. Find one or two areas where you need growth the most. Identify those things. Try to figure out the wrong beliefs and motivations and apply truth to them. Bathe your problems in prayer. God will help you. He's promised to do that. And he loves to help his children. He loves for us to pray and come to him with our problems. Find some godly examples and imitate. Find someone who does this better than you do and just get behind them and spend time with them. Jump on board and watch their lives. Be honest about your problems. Don't hide things and just let them know what's going on. Ask for help. And remember that God is with you. This isn't do more, do better, self-help. God has promised he will, he will help us and he'll continue the good work that he has started. And if you've never experienced God's work in your life, if you haven't truly come to know Christ yet, please come to talk to one of us. We would love to tell you about this God that we serve and tell you about the good news of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth that you've given to us. Thank you for the reminders of how we need to be living faithfully. Thank you for the fact that you are the one who gives us the ability. You have sent your son, your son to redeem us and save us from ourselves, from our sin, from your wrath. And now you've called us to serve you, and you've given us the ability to do it. So I pray that we would put out effort, that we would not waste what you've done for us, that we would not reject and disregard your work, your gospel, your word. I pray that we would not be bad testimonies for you, people who claim your name. I pray that we would live lives that are consistent. I pray that we would be self-controlled and that we would find and be the right kind of models for other people. Lord, we all sin. I've sinned so much, failed in so many ways. Even this week as I've been preparing to teach this, I feel like Chang, who's trying to teach something that he hasn't really mastered yet. But I pray, Lord, that you would just help us all to be faithful, to grow, and to develop patterns in our lives. I pray that it would be a good testimony to the world around us, that it would um, manifest your gospel, that it would... We can't make the gospel attractive by making it relevant or whatever other buzzword people throw around, but we can show your gospel to be true by the way it changes our lives, and that's compelling to people. I pray that we would do that. So I pray, Lord, that we would do that this week, that we would find an area or two to work on, that we would confess it before you, that we would not give up and grow weary, that we would not just try it once 
and get discouraged and give up because it, in our view, didn't work. So I pray, Lord, that you help us this week to, to do all these things. We pray that it would honor and glorify you because we know that is why we're here. And that's what we live for. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.